Hey, Real Talkers, what a week on the show. Obviously, a big one with the Prime Minister joining us on the 21st of February and the spinoff after that. Johnny and I will get into some of the highlights, some of the funniest chirps we've received from that interview in this episode of Real Talk. And of course, it's an all Justin Trudeau edition of The Flamethrower presented by the DQs of Northwest Edmonton in Sherwood Park. That's at the end, the wrap of this episode. But first... How about we wrestle with this number? More than 300,000 Canadians will experience homelessness this year. That's like four times the number of people that were evacuated by that Fort McMurray wildfire. It's more than the entire population of Saskatoon. So why don't we treat it like a national disaster? Why don't we implement solutions we know exist? We get into it in this week's Real Talk Roundtable. This is a Relay Project. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. I want to welcome you to this Real Talk Roundtable. In just a moment, we're going to introduce you to four experts who are doing everything in their power to address a national disaster. To address something that has perhaps not been taken as seriously as it should, but it's an issue that's solvable. Would you believe that 300,000 Canadians are experiencing homelessness right now? Would you believe that in our home city alone, our home city of Edmonton, more than 300 people, nearly one per day, will die on the street? Today, we endeavor to figure out what we're doing wrong and what we can do right to address this crisis. First, I want to let you know that this episode is happening with the support of Rello, our presenting sponsor right here on Real Talk. And this is a quick message for those of you that are going to take this weekend or maybe this month to find a way to get out of that job you're stuck in and to find career satisfaction. You know, you can launch a rewarding career in real estate with Rello's affordable online courses that make it easy to pass your exam and get your license so you can set up your own business, set your own hours, and tap into that unlimited earning potential. Now, the reason why so many people are choosing Rello, that's R-E-L-O, is because the team there is committed to your success. They have instructors that run these online exam prep sessions every Saturday, plus a bunch of resources once your career is officially off the ground. The best news, because you're hearing about Rello on Real Talk right now, you can save 20% on any Rello course with the code REALTALK. That's all one word, REALTALK. When you get started today at Rello.ca. It was a huge honor uh, to participate in the Chancellor's Forum on Sheltering the Truth. That went down at the University of Alberta less than 12 hours ago, and it was hosted by one of our guests who joins us in studio today. That's the Chancellor of the University of Alberta and a wonderful friend of this show, Peggy Garrity. It's so nice to see you here, Peggy. Thanks for making time for us. Thanks, Ryan. Really happy to be here today. We're joined by uh, an internist and addiction specialist, Dr. Monty Gosh. Thanks for making time for us, Doc. Nice Thanks, to Ryan. see you here. 
Jordan Reiniger is joining us. He's executive director of Boyle Street Community Services. You guys have been in the headlines. I think more people are aware now of what you're doing than ever before. Jordan, thanks for joining us in studio. Thanks. It's my pleasure. And when people are talking about uh, those that are experiencing homelessness or houselessness in Canada, everybody knows the name Tim Richter. Tim is the executive director of the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness, who's joining us from Calgary. Tim, you hit the road. You hit the QE2 right after that Chancellor's Forum last night. We appreciate you making time for us from your home this morning. You uh, delivered the keynote in front of a packed audience last night. It was live streaming as well. The link will be in our show notes for people that want to watch the event as it played out. Mm -hmm. But put this into perspective for us. Homelessness as a disaster in Canada. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, the mass homelessness that we're seeing today in Canada that you were describing earlier is on the scale that's bigger than Canada's largest natural disasters in terms of the loss of housing. So if you think about the flood uh, in Calgary in 2013, uh, about 77,000 households were forced, people, the households were forced out of their homes. Uh, the Fort McMurray wildfire in 2016, 75,000 people were forced out of their homes. Uh, even Yellowknife, about 20,000 people. As you mentioned, over 300,000 people are expected to lose their housing over the course of this year in Canada. And when you think about that scale of the loss of housing, but also the economic impact, you know, like homelessness costs the Canadian economy over $8 billion per year, at least. And uh, it's also would be one of the top 10 most lethal disasters in Canadian history. Uh, if you stack it up against, uh, stacked it up against some of the others. So, you know, this is a, a massive tragedy and it's a hum humanitarian disaster that's unfolding in our streets. But the good news is unlike fires or floods, well, maybe fires, but unlike floods, you know, this is preventable. This is preventable and this is solvable. One of the things that becomes apparent anytime somebody hears you talk about this, Tim, is 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 when you invoke the word disaster, it gets people's attention. Maybe we've been using the wrong language, Jordan, when we talk about homelessness and when we talk about this bigger crisis. It, maybe it just hasn't lit that fire under the public that it needs to. Yeah, I mean, that's possible. I think we we have been trying to articulate the situation on the ground for a long time, uh, that it's getting worse and worse over time and not better since the pandemic in particular. Um, the number of people who are who are dying and experiencing really severe outcomes um, uh, are is increasing steadily. Uh, the numbers just keep going up. 301 people in our city died last year, which is dramatically higher than any other year that we've ever experienced. And so uh, things are moving in the wrong direction right now because we're not addressing the problem. It might be a dumb question, but yeah. what changed last year? Why dramatically higher last year? Uh, it just has continued to grow and increase. And mm. so um, so part of it is the, the drug poisoning crisis that is in our city. Uh, part of it is just the number of people that are out there on the street without the kind of supports that they would need to be able to to sort of survive and live in a good way. And uh, and so there's there's a lot of challenges. And I think one of the challenges is it's been a, like a bit of a frog in boiling water, right? It's been getting worse. Mm -hmm. So if we if we took the situation on the ground today and we just transplanted it in 2019, people would see it as a disaster. But it's been steadily growing and getting worse and worse and worse over time. And so incrementally, it doesn't feel that much more significant but if you compare today to you know four years ago 
It's a dramatic difference. Dr. Gosh, are you seeing that? I mean, we should note that you're, you're an assistant professor, uh, University of Alberta. You work out of Calgary as well. Uh, you're obviously a medical doctor, but you do a lot of work as well in frontline services, drop-in centers and the like. Uh, when Jordan talks about this exponential increase, it, not in a good way, and the numbers are up in the worst kind of a way, you must see that firsthand all the time. 100%. So we're seeing huge increases in people dying because of the opiate epidemic, but also because of exposure. So while they're outside, they're exposed to cold weather. We see a lot of frostbites, uh, but we're also seeing a lot of burns, interestingly enough, from encampments. We've seen over a 300, sorry, three-time increase in the number of people being admitted to burn units in this province this past year from people experiencing homelessness than we've ever seen before. And that's huge. And, and we know that homelessness is a health issue. I mean, I come at it from a very biased lens, of course, coming at it from a physician's lens. But uh, if you're an individual experiencing homelessness and you're on the streets, your mortality is 10 times that higher than someone who's stably housed. If you're in a shelter, it's three times that of someone who's stably housed. Uh, those are high, high risks, higher than you know, cardiac arrest, higher than cancer. So why aren't we treating it as such? Can you repeat what you told us last night at the Chancellor's Forum about life expectancy? That stopped me in my tracks. Yeah, you know, I, I find when I first heard that, it, it blew my mind. But uh, the average life expectancy for a Canadian is is 82, somewhere between 78 and 82. I mean, it shifts from year to year, of course. It's dropping because of the opioid epidemic. But uh, for someone expressing homelessness, the life expectancy, if they're female, is between the ages of 30 and 35. And if they're male, it's between 40 and 45. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's such a loss for human life. And, 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 and when you look at those numbers and the life expectancy, I don't understand why we're not doing more to address it. it it's a huge public health issue. Life expectancy of 30 to 35, like Peggy, I don't know about you, Chancellor Garrity, uh, but, but that to me, that, that forces a moment of reflection. Uh, that, I mean, you, you look at jurisdictions around the world, uh, people living in the worst kind of poverty with zero access to any sort of medical resource and life expectancy is right around that same number. Uh, so what does that say about how we're treating that element of our population, our fellow human beings, as someone said last night at the forum, our brothers and sisters, right? I mean, uh, the chancellor of a university like the University of Alberta, one of Canada's leading institutions, you had a choice on what you wanted the theme of your forum to be. Well, why did you select this one? Why was this so important to you personally as the chancellor? It's, you know, the, I've, I think I'm like a regular community member. I'm, I'm watching and I'm seeing these kinds of things happening in the community. And then get challenged about what the university was doing, what the university's involvement would be. And, you know, you said at the beginning that these are four experts. I am not an expert in this at all, never intended to set out this way. But as I learned more and talked to people who are experts about this, just hearing the words, hearing those statistics, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> excuse me, hearing the Hearing the stories, seeing the people, I, I visited one of the encampments, listening to them, listening to these people that are here today, and thinking, this is a disaster. But also, it is, as we heard last night, it is solvable. And that's the thing, I think, that is so important to get that message out, that we can solve this, that there are ways of solving it. We know what the solutions are. That makes it a little bit more frustrating that we're actually not doing those things. Right. But but the fact I think some people in the community just feel like it's hopeless. 
that we we just don't know where to start. We don't know where to turn. We don't know what we should be doing. And so my reason for having that forum last night was just to shine a spotlight on this, on the issue, and to get other people to hear from people like Jordan and Monty and Tim about what's really happening and the kinds of things that we can do to, to solve it and address the problem. I want to give a shout out to our uh, live audience here tuning in on YouTube, participating in the chat. Um, you know, Tony, for example, she says, I know that housing is a provincial jurisdiction. More on that, Tony, in just a sec, because it kind of is, but it kind of isn't. Um, says, but there have to be avenues that the city can take and, and not just giving away land to developers like Candy. Developers do have to play a role. Maybe we'll get into that today as well. Uh, 80s Fanify says, uh, I read a quote recently that said something like, we are all closer to being houseless than being millionaires. And that's really stuck with me. I don't know about you. Uh, I'm way closer to being houseless than being a millionaire. I'm not trying to be funny at all. Um, you know, Tracy says we need to start focusing on root causes instead of focusing on reaction 100% of the time. Uh, you know, uh, Tracy goes on to say disasters are preventable, but there are a range of sacrifices that must be made to prevent them. Are individuals, families, and society prepared? Uh, a lot of our audience members responding to the numbers that you just dropped on us, doctor, as well around life expectancy. And then, Tim, there's some comments in the chat as well. People are saying, you know, this is a choice. This is a choice. You talked about that in a big way. Yeah. Well, it, it is a choice, but perhaps not the way some folks are thinking about it. You know, homelessness, uh, as I, we were talking about it last night, homelessness is a housing problem. It's not caused by addiction. It's not caused by mental illness. It's not caused by personal fault or failing. Um, you know, when you, when you study the data, uh, there was a really good study that I talked about last night. Uh, in a book called Homelessness as a Housing Problem by a guy named Greg Colburn from Washington State. But he looked all over the United States and he, and he looked at different cities and he, he compared, you know, all of these different cities and tried to figure out who has the higher rates of homelessness and who has lower rates of homelessness and why is there a difference. And when he looked, it wasn't due to addiction. So he looked at like West Virginia, for example, the United States has the highest rates of addiction in, in the United States, but one of the lowest rates of homelessness. He looked at weather, uh, whether, you know, when you compared, say, cities in California with like Austin or New York, uh, that didn't explain the rate of homelessness, mental illness. Similarly, poverty rates, surprisingly, he looked at something like Detroit, for example, who has fairly high rates of poverty, but relatively low rates of homelessness, he said, but what they concluded was that it, the, the thing that explains increased rates of homelessness is housing and the housing market. And so when you look even at Edmonton, uh, you can see that that how, how this is playing out. So between 2009 and 2019, the city of Edmonton reduced uh, overall homelessness by about 43%, right? That, that is the largest reduction in homelessness of any major city in Canada, right? any major city and you hit 2019 and then the pandemic in 2020 and what we saw was uh, a huge increase beginning an increase in population increase in rent uh, decrease in vacancy and a, an, a significant increase in homelessness so homelessness in edmonton between 2000 2019 and 2024 uh, has gone up 43%, right? And a lot of that is down to the pandemic, high cost of rent, low vacancy, right? And I think it's really, really, really important that we understand that homelessness is a housing problem. 
Because if we attribute homelessness to some individual fault or failing, then we go down a path of solution that's ineffective. If we And we blame people. We blame people for what's happened to them. And that's just not right. right? This is a structural problem. It's caused by housing, the lack of housing, specifically the lack of uh, rental and affordable rental housing. Jordan, what is the the uh, the story of of Edmonton's encampments done? Do you think from from a high profile nature, uh, from a front page news uh, type of a situation to advance uh, conversations and most importantly action uh, on this file? Has it has it actually accomplished anything? What have what have you seen with public sentiment, with political action over the past few months? Yeah, I mean, I think it's been obviously probably the biggest story in our city for for the last couple of months. Um, I think that it has evoked action. I think the worrying thing is that action, in my opinion, hasn't always been the right response to what has been seen uh, on the ground. Uh, I think it has done what Peggy has talked about. And I think a lot of people are coming away from this saying it's so complicated. There's no solutions to this. Um, and I think that that is a, a, a sort of a tragedy. I think Edmontonians do care. I think uh, when I talk to people, um, mm-hmm. they do really uh, care about uh, the issues. They care about people who are living on the street. I think there's just a bit of hopelessness about, well, what's the solution? Uh, and I think in the vacuum of, of solutions being presented, um, then people make up their own minds and other narratives can take forward. And I wanna just sort of say what Monty talked about, pick that up, about it being healthcare related issue. And what Tim was saying about being a housing issue, uh, and primarily since the the pandemic, we have talked about it as a public safety issue. And uh, the, we have equated people who are in the most vulnerable state uh, as being safety threats, as opposed to people who need our care and need our support. And uh, and I think when you the lens that you look at a problem matters. And when you're looking at it as a public safety problem. Uh, then you're going to have a public safety response, which is what we have had to the encampment problem. It is the police taking the lead on a, a very, um, uh, a very sad and very complex social issue, uh, and uh, and that is probably not the most appropriate group to be doing that. Huh. Uh, that's uh, Jordan Reininger with uh, Boyle Street Community Services. This the Real Talk Roundtable. Uh, Basically, I, I like how Tim's putting it. We're, we're addressing one of the biggest disasters that our nation is grappling with right now by the numbers. You cannot deny it. So why has our response not matched? It's not like we're not spending on it. And by we, I'm talking about the collective, the, the taxpayers, as we say. It's not like governments aren't dumping money at this, but is the money going in the right spot? Is it intuitive and informed uh, expenditure or investment? I, I guess that's where we'll go in just a quick second. Back mm-hmm. to the live chat as well to get your take on this. Uh, you're watching either live right now on YouTube, on Real Top, listening live maybe on the Mixer Audio app presented by our friends at California Closets who do want to give you that quick heads up. If your plan is to invest in your home right now on the organizational front you've promised yourself you're going to declutter you've got to finally make good on that plan to convert the home office to the spare bedroom or the spare bedroom to the home office get the storage room under control finally get that entertainment unit installed you just need a prompt here it is you can get your free consultation today by visiting californiaclosets.ca nobody touches their experts experience perspective and of course their talented team of installers as well we recommend that you take your business 
to California closets. It's Heart Month at Friesen Brothers. They're proud to be supporting the Mazenkowski Alberta Heart Institute. And, of course, that also means good news for Friesen Brothers customers in 16 different Alberta locations. You can learn more on their website at Friesen.com on what they're doing for Heart Month. The Red Seal chefs have some great meals in store for you, awesome recipe ideas. As a matter of fact, through the month of February, you can check out their latest flyer, a lot of the heart-healthy options are clearly marked as such in-store. So you can eat healthy, you can feed your family meals you know they're going to love, and of course at Friesen Brothers, they're always looking for ways to ensure that that food is affordable for families across the province. Friesen Brothers is Alberta-grown and Alberta-owned. A shout-out to those of you that are either underemployed or unemployed right now. You know you've got the work ethic. You're not sure if you've got the necessary experience, but you know you'd love to be part of the green energy movement in Canada. Kubi Renewable Energy is hiring people of all levels of experience, from apprentices all the way up to journey person, electricians, from sales personnel to HR personnel, office managers, you name it. Kubi would love to add you to their team. If you're big on getting Canada serious about solar, they're hiring for locations in Lethbridge, Kamloops, Edmonton, Calgary, and beyond. You can check out the careers link at kubienergy.ca. And the same thing goes for our friends at Apex Automation. I know that this podcast is going to find some engineers, and we're talking to the engineers that you know you're good at what you do, but you don't feel like your employer's meeting you there. You don't feel like you're hitting your true potential. Apex Automation wants to talk to you. They're building a culture at Apex where amazing people like you can do their best work. If you're ready to grow your career, challenge yourself, learn new skills, you've come to the right place. Learn more about what they're automating in BC, at the ports, in Alberta, on those pipelines, in Saskatchewan, in the potash industry, plus robotics, conveyor belts, overhead cranes, and more. The future is bright when you take your next step with a career move at apexautomation.ca. We talk a lot about money. We talk a lot about funding. And when you talk to politicians about things like homelessness in Canada, you know that a lot of times the bucks get passed, don't they? Municipalities say we're not getting enough support from the province. There's not enough support from the feds. The province says it's Ottawa's job. Ottawa says that this is the province's job. And at the end of the day, we wonder what's actually getting done. So why don't we talk about where intuitive investments need to go? Uh, Dr. Gosh, I want to talk to you about the front lines in just a quick second. But Tim, why don't you tee this up for us? What are the boneheaded funding decisions you've seen? And what are the really smart ones? Well, uh, first of all, the I mean, the, I'll say the, the boneheaded one is that we allow people experiencing homelessness to, to be pushed around very expensive public systems. Right. So if you're experiencing homelessness in Edmonton, for example, you're in an encampment, you are going to be pushed into uh, the healthcare system. Monty will tell you it costs a thousand bucks to keep a person per night in uh, the hospital. Then you may end up in remand center, $88,000 a year, right? 300 and something dollars a night. And then you're, you might get arrested again. You're going to go to a shelter. And around and around you go, right? And that is not solving the problem, right? You even talk about the response to encampments. Having police respond with enforcement to encampments is, is simply pushing the problem around. Imagine squeezing one end of a water balloon, right? You're just pushing it 
pushing the problem somewhere else and propelling it into this very expensive public system, not solving the problem. You know, you can spend upwards of two hundred and thirty to two hundred fifty thousand dollars per person per year on not solving homelessness. Right. You know, and for the cost of remand, you could put somebody up in the Fairmont. Right. When you put that into perspective, a thousand dollars a day, Tim, it's tough to wrap your mind around. Exactly. Right. So we know that you can take someone. So Edmonton has housed about 16,000 people directly off the streets out of shelter since 2009. Right. For the people with the most acute needs, we know that they can be housed and supported for anything. But like people with complex needs, active addiction, mental health problems. Right. They can be housed for about 16 to 20 to maybe perhaps $35,000 per person per year, depending on the level of care that they need in the community, in a Housing First program, right? So compare $35,000 a year for somebody with complex needs per person per year with, you know, $100,000, $200,000 per person per year. It is far cheaper to solve this problem than it is to ignore it. Peggy, one of the interesting things I noticed uh, at, at your forum last night with the, the, the audience engagement, and it was a packed house, you know, I don't know, it seemed like a couple hundred people in there at least. Um, and, 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 and that question, people saying, what can we do? Like it was engaged citizens there that, that are, are, are not content with status quo. They're not obviously able to, to, to sort of just accept uh, the current situation. And then there were some awesome, you know, some great uh, questions as well. Like what can post-secondary institutions do? What can people in positions of leadership do? What, what did you take away from all that? Because the average person is going to listen to this and go, well, I, I, I mean, I don't work for a housing agency. I don't work law enforcement, health provider. But that doesn't mean they don't care. Yeah, I think I think that's it's a frustration that people have because they they really do want to do something. I think, as Jordan said, people in Edmonton care. I absolutely believe that. And I think they just don't know where to turn. And so I think that's, again, one of the reasons why for having the forum and, and thankfully conversations like this one this morning is for people to understand that there are solutions. I, I know that they're, it's not within their power necessarily to make those solutions happen, but they have voices. I think Tim mentioned last night at the end of our session that people that are that are homeless are often voiceless. They don't have a, a voice. They need people to ha- express their voices on on their behalf. And so I think that's I think that's one of the things that people can do. They can talk to mm-hmm. they can talk to their city councilors, they can talk to their MLAs, they can talk to their federal politicians and say this is a disaster and we expect we expect to see results and and we expect things to to happen. I think I think that's that's what gives you hope. It's it's not going to be quick, but but I think there is hope. There's there are ways as we've talked about that this that this issue can be addressed. That we can make progress, and I I think I think the leaders at all levels in our community just need to hear from regular community members that they care about this and they expect things to be done. I agree with you. And, and one of the things that I'm having a really hard time wrapping my mind around is, is, you know, experts like those that are joining us on this panel today, like Tim, you're just talking about, you know, a, dro- a drop mm-hmm. in, of 43% in the city of Edmonton. And, and, and then that momentum just kind of stopped. And one of the right. things that I've kind of been wrestling with in particular since the chancellor's forum is that we understand that 
what we need to do. We have done it. It worked. Mm -hmm. And then for whatever reason, we stopped doing it. And I'll be honest, I'm one of the many, many people that a bit of a local reference here for our audience. But former Edmonton Mayor Stephen Mandel, I remember he he rolled out. He said there's a there's going to be a 10 year plan to end homelessness. And then, Mm -hmm. to be honest, because I'm a little bit lazy like everybody else, and there's a lot of things competing for our attention. Time went on and years ticked by Mm -hmm. and I still see people experiencing homelessness. And so I guess I had kind of resolved him that Mayor Mandel's plan was just a failure Uh, and -hmm. probably bigger picture. You look at it and say, I guess that homelessness can't be solved. Yet here you are Mm -hmm. saying that it is and that we've proven that it can be. So how is the average person supposed to wrap their mind around that? We know how to do it. We're just not. Yeah. Well, and again, this is this is really a matter of political will. You know, when that plan was released, you know, Edmonton set about one of the again, one of the nation leading responses to homelessness. It had a lot of success. Now, the challenge was the province was engaged under Premier Stelmack and committed to uh, ending homelessness. The city was engaged. You were making progress. But the federal government was AWOL. And as we know, uh, homelessness is a housing problem and you need the resources and the jurisdiction of the federal government to get engaged and build housing. Modern mass homelessness, like we see today, began in the 1980s. Do you know most of Canada's purpose-built rental was built before 1980 because the federal government subsidized the construction of rental housing and built lots of affordable housing. Right. And so in the absence of federal government engagement and that focus on building rental housing, uh, we had this explosion of homelessness. So while Edmonton housed 16,000 people, there are a whole bunch of more people becoming homeless. But especially since the beginning of the pandemic, and as Monty talked about last night, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, we took people out of out of jail really quickly, sent them right into the homeless shelters. Um, you know, we saw people losing their housing. We saw people being having to be moved out of shelter into shelter hotels or other arrangements to, to allow social distancing, right? So many people decided to be outside because they were worried about getting sick in the shelter and they don't particularly like being in shelter in the first place, right? And then you have population growth, huge amounts of population growth. Again, federal jurisdiction, right? We had a huge surge in population growth across Canada uh, in the last couple of years. You know, all of these things contribute to this this homelessness. But again, we know we know what to do. And it, it you know, I imagine if so. You know, you've got what a hundred thousand people that'll tune into your podcast, right, or more. I don't know. I'm assuming that may, at least at least maybe a million. Who knows? But imagine if everyone at least right. Imagine if every one of your listeners today took one action, right? I, you know, I can send you a link and we're, we're trying to push the federal government to invest in housing, right? Took one action, click that link, sent a letter to the prime minister, uh, Minister Freeland and Minister Fraser and said, we need this to be the housing budget. We need you to invest in rental housing, right? And then they did the same thing with the province. I promise you that would get attention, right? We, we really need, you know, as you know, Ralph Klein's Martha and Henry. We need Martha and Henry to say to the provincial government, to say to the federal government, to say to our city governments, you know what? This is a solvable problem. We need you to prioritize it. We need you to fix the housing system and we need you to solve homelessness. And you know what? 
they would. Uh, Dr. Gosh, uh, there's an interesting comment here on, on the chat. I want to put this in front of you. I, w- I want you to talk to us about the, the human beings that you interact with, the people. Let's remind ourselves, right? The, uh, you know, I was, I was corrected by a young person a short time ago uh, that wrote into the show, actually, a high school student that listens to Real Talk. And, and I had, in a throwaway comment, had talked about the homeless. Mm-hmm. And they said, you know, we've, we've altered our language. I know people are talking about houselessness as well. Uh, But this young person said, we talk about people experiencing homelessness. We remind ourselves in the language we use that these are people that are experiencing something, that their circumstance does not define who they are. Uh, I'm not going to pile on an audience member, but I'm referencing a comment. Alberta Girl says the homeless that we took in over the years were either addicted and wanted to continue with the booze or drugs, or they simply did not want to work and have to pay rent. And all of them had access to supports. They just were not interested. That from Alberta Girl. Tell us about the people that you work with and work for every day. So I think one of our biggest problems in society is we victimize individuals experiencing homelessness. We consider them a problem. We consider them uh, individuals who have made choices that got them into that situation. Uh, They are victims, but they're victims of society in my mind. And we know this from uh, from adverse childhood experiences and this concept of adverse childhood experiences. So there was a study that was done back in the 90s, uh, uh, Casa Permanente in, in California, where they looked at the 10 top uh, sort of traumas that people face in their youth. And they looked forward and saw what their health outcomes were and the personal outcomes were later on in life. And they found that if you had four or more of these 10 adverse childhood experiences. This included emotional, sexual, physical trauma, uh, emotional, physical neglect, and structural issues within the family, such as uh, divorce, uh, having a parent who had a mental health issue. Uh, You were at a higher risk, sometimes even 10 times of a higher risk of having substance use issue, but also being and experiencing homelessness. And so that's huge. And if we look at these individuals through that lens that they are, they've experienced trauma in their lives, they've, they've, uh, they've been neglected, they've faced structural racism and other aspects of society that have really marginalized them, you can understand why they got to where they're at. And I think that's the thing that we fail to recognize when we deal with this population is we, we t- tend to say that they don't want to engage with us, they don't want to access resources, they have substance use issues. But in reality, a lot of times they don't want to engage in resources because they mistrust the system. They've been uh, mistreated since they were a child with the system. They 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 don't feel that the system can help them necessarily. And it's up to us to build that relationship up again. It's up to us to form that relationship trust. And that takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. Uh, I mean, I think a lot of us have issues with trust. Uh, And if you can imagine if you've been sexually assaulted, if you've been racially discriminated against, uh, and you've been pushed to the margins of society, it would be very hard to engage and very hard to sort of reintroduce yourself and sort of re to work with others. Mm. Right. It's incredibly hard. Yeah. Been on that too. Cause I think, um, um, one of the things that people don't realize is people have actually tried a lot of the systems already and they haven't worked for them. Right. So they've tried to go into, uh, some form of treatment center, but a 24 day, 28 day treatment for somebody with a really abstinence based treatment with somebody with a complex opioid addiction, uh, is doomed for failure. And even if it worked, they get discharged back into homelessness. And so there's a lot of people out there who have tried multiple times, um, but are saying now, well, why would I try again, right? Uh, The other factor that I think is um, a a horrifying one 
is that a lot of people, because of the way that they've been treated, because of their background, uh, I would say one of the number one issues is shame. So that people mm -hmm. feel a deep sense of shame and don't feel like that's actually they're worth the effort to move forward. And I think when you have, uh, you know, this is why sometimes the, the political conversation around people being safety threats and being mm -hmm. issues, this is why it's so toxic and so dangerous is because it's reinforcing the shame narrative that people feel uh, around themselves and around how they've been treated and, and uh, whether they're even worthy of, of moving forward. And I think, um, you know, how, how we do this and how we solve these challenges matter. And to Monty's point, are we doing things that are building that trust back up again? Or are we doing things that uh, break that trust down again and reinforce those narratives? And I think that for me, that's the tragedy in this encampment response we've had is it's, it's breaking that trust down. It's reinforcing those narratives. It's treating people like criminals uh, and piling on that shame that people often already feel. Okay, let me throw this okay. feedback into the chat and then right over to you, Tim. Uh, Erica in the live chat says, I don't, I don't really like the blame the police sentiment. You know, they would rather be doing pretty much anything else than going to these encampments, but nearby residents need their safety concerns addressed as well. Tim, what would you say to Erica? And, and in response to Jordan. Hey, I, I totally agree. Like I, I come from a family of police officers right? My sister, my dad, my uncles and cousins, like we, you know, I've been around police officers my whole life. And I promise you that most of the officers that I've ever met would rather be doing much more valuable work, you know, solving crime, not punishing the victims with encampment sweeps, right? And there are much better responses, right? There are more effective responses to, to encampments. But I, I want to jump on a point that, that Jordan and Monty were making so well, right? Like, I, I really want to emphasize, like, at the root of most, if not all, addiction is pain, right? And if we think about the cause of homelessness is a lack of housing, and we recognize that it's not caused by individual circumstance, and, we, and, and I encourage people, you know, imagine, imagine your worst day. Imagine if you were feeling intense physical pain all the time. Imagine if you couldn't sleep. Imagine if you were dealing with the trauma of losing your children to care or childhood abuse or simply being treated like dirt on the street, right? These are people in pain and you don't treat people in pain with enforcement, right? And I don't think the police want to do that either, right? Like the vast majority of police officers are good people. They don't want to be doing this. And there are more effective responses. The, the problem is this issue has been politicized. There are people exploiting the community fears and justifiable community fears, to be honest. Like people are concerned when they see open drug use or they see encampments. And that's understandable. But the response, the more effective response is to have a conversation. When you think about people are choosing to live in encampment, well, who, who would choose to live outside in Edmonton when it's 40 below, right? What's choices between options? What's so bad about option B being the, option A being, being a shelter or something else that option B, the encampment's the better choice. You wanna solve an encampment, you sit down with the people in them, understand you know, what, what they needed, Find out a little bit about them and their history. Ask them, you know, how, how can we help you? 
And I guarantee if you said, could we interest you in housing that, you know, meets your needs where we don't want to force you to go to church. We don't want to force you to, you don't necessarily have to stop drinking or using, but we can support you and then get you on a path to recovering. Like if we give them a better option, 99.9% of the time they're going to choose it. And the only reason they won't is getting back to what Monty says, they don't trust us because they've been burned by the system over and over again. I know I'm not the first to say this, but it's, it's never lost on me that, you know, a lot of folks reaction is, you know, someone, someone on the street, it's got their palm out. They're hoping for a toonie or a five. And, uh, you know, oftentimes I think maybe to, to get out of giving the people say, well, mm-hmm. they'll whisper to their young child, they're just going to go spend it on drugs and booze. And then that person will walk past the individual into Roger's place and spend $90 on booze as they watch the Oilers play crushing edibles and mushrooms and enjoying their drug of choice. Right. Is this, Oh, they're just going to spend the money on booze. Yeah. Just like the rest of us do. Uh, we become yeah. so so obsessed with the you've got to be here. You've got to be at this point in your sobriety or you've got to have this figured out before we can get a roof over your head, which just is so counterintuitive. It just doesn't make sense. Why is it? I guess we just are so pious. We've got to have the, the moral high ground. We like to feel like we've got to figure it out when other people haven't, Jordan. Yeah, I mean, I think um, it was mentioned a little bit last night, uh, this different between, difference between perceptions of safety and and discomfort. And I think a lot of people feel very uncomfortable, whether consciously or subconsciously, that in our community, there are people who are in such desperate poverty that they're sitting there begging for money. And, um, and I think uh, we, we then go to the place as humans as moralizing, well, the reason they're there, they, they must have done something wrong to be there. And, uh, and I think the one, one important thing that we can all do as, as citizens is in those moments, whether you give money or not, uh, the important thing is to acknowledge the humanity of that individual. Because 99 of 100 people will completely ignore the person or make disparaging comments. And I think what we've created in our community because we've scapegoated, if we're honest, uh, people experiencing homelessness uh, as the reason why our downtown hasn't recovered. Right. When it's much broader than that, obviously. Um, we've created this real animosity in our community. Um, and and people who are experiencing homelessness feel that. And so I think that one thing that people can do in addition to using their voices is just show kindness and acknowledge the humanity of the people that they're seeing who are um, often sort of pushed aside and treated like trespassers uh, in their own community. And I think that, um, so give money, don't give money, you know, that's up to you, but, uh, but acknowledge the humanity and, and uh, look them in the eye and um, say hello and smile uh, because chances are the last 10 interactions have not been good. Hmm. Aaron in our chat says, instead of fear, Uh, Next time you're headed downtown, why not fill your backpack with granola bars and juice boxes? Uh, Kimberly says, I know uh, an addict who is so deeply loved by a huge community. He's chosen to live on the streets and continue with his addiction because of his internal demons. He doesn't think he deserves better. Um, I want to ask all four of you about the youth, young people. Uh, A a friend of mine who was in attendance last night, I'm sure she wouldn't mind me invoking her name, Margot Long. Uh, with Youth Empowerment and Support Services. She came up to me. No host wants this feedback, but we also want it. We invite it. She came up to me and she said, you missed an important angle. She said, we didn't spend much time talking about young people. And there's a comment here that I think will tee this up. And then I want to go to all four of you on this. 
you know, but, but, but uh, people are asking here, gosh, I can't find the, the, the live chat's going nuts this morning, which is absolutely fantastic. Uh, everybody's contributing, everybody's sharing. There was someone in the live chat that said, can we talk about the demographics? Uh, can we can we talk about who's most likely to wind up in this situation? Is is it uh, indigenous people in Canada? Is it uh, the LGBTQ2S plus population? Is it people that have experienced sexual or physical assault as children? Um, I know all of you will have insights on this. Tim, do you want to start the mm-hmm. conversation here in the context of young people and demographic? Yeah, well, you know, young people are, especially uh, young people that are in the LGBTQ2S community uh, are at much higher, at higher risk of, uh, of homelessness if they have some, you know, especially if they have conflict uh, with their family or importantly, if they're involved in the child welfare system, the child welfare system in Canada is a super highway into homelessness. They will literally project kids directly uh, from care into into the streets. And, you know, I, I, I think we should think about uh, kids in care in Alberta a little bit differently. When, when a child is taken from their parents and brought into care, they become our children right they are wards of the state they're wards of the of the province of alberta they are our children so we have a responsibility to ensure that they you know are safe they're healthy they get a good education they have friends and they have have stable housing when they leave they're our kids and we should do for them what every parent would do for them right you talk about indigenous people right? We know that uh, Indigenous men are 11 times more likely to be in a homeless shelter in Canada than non-Indigenous men. Indigenous women are 15 times more likely to be in a homeless shelter than non-Indigenous women. We also know that women are significantly underrepresented in, in homeless statistics because they experience homelessness invisibly. They will do everything they can to avoid a homeless shelter that is incredibly unsafe to them or uh, living in a campus, which is also incredibly unsafe. So they end up and you know t- can often get trapped in sex trafficking. They get engaged in a survival sex. They'd rather stay with, find a boyfriend or something to stay off of the streets in an unhealthy relationship than, than go into the streets. But one of the things that we, we don't often talk about, and Monty could probably shed a bit more light on this, is is the, the prevalence of people with brain injury and developmental disability. So people, that to me is one of the things we don't often talk about uh, in homelessness, but you, I think you're, you, would, you would see, if you were able to examine them, people that have, uh, people have brain injuries either acquired while they were homeless from violence, or related to addiction or other things, concussion, things like that, or people with developmental disability, people experiencing autism or things like that, right? Um, I, I, you know, it's it's uh, really really a mix, and I think what you what you see, what meets the eye, isn't uh, isn't what's actually there because the vast majority of people who experience homelessness are in and out in like a day, or two days, or a week. Right. But there's a group of people that end up getting stuck for long periods of time. Dr. Gosh, when we talk about the youth angle in this conversation, how does that resonate with you, with what you do as an addiction specialist? So I don't see as many youth as, as I think that I should, that they tend to be within the healthcare system. 17 or below goes to usually to pediatrics. 17 or above comes to adults. Right. I, I usually see just the adults. I do see youth every now and then. But I, I think to Tim's point, and the thing that I think that, is, that really we need to highlight is that uh, it's not just youth. It's anybody who's transitioning. Uh, and by transitioning, they're moving from one service to another. 
whether they're going from the the welfare system, uh, uh, sorry, from the the youth welfare system, if they're in the foster care, moving out of the foster care system, if they're going from corrections to the community, if they're leaving hospital to the community. I think that's one of the big things that I see often is this sort of transitions piece as to who gets affected. Uh, and, and I think we need to do better from that perspective. Like I think from, a, again, a healthcare lens, we need to be better at helping people transition uh, from whatever that transition may be. Uh, but yes, youth is a huge issue. We do see a lot of uh, youth who are experiencing homelessness. They don't have the same needs necessarily as people who are, who are adults. Uh, it's a very tailored population that we need to focus on, but we need to have very specific solutions for them that are very different than the rest of the population. A lot of them don't have substance use concerns in comparison to, the, to adult populations. Or yet. Or yet. Um, a lot and of the, at the same time, to, to state mm -hmm. the obvious, like uh, homelessness may be a housing problem, but like youth experiencing homelessness are not necessarily 100% there just because they don't have a house. There's other factors. Can we all acknowledge that? I mean, that seems to be obvious. 100%. Uh, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. Ryan, and I, I talked with Marco last night as well. She's oh, did a good you? friend. And uh, I, I think that that warrants a discussion all on its own because from what she was saying, it's very challenging right now. Uh, for the services that that they provide, and I think also if Cheryl Whiskey Jack was was here, she would remind us as well about the problems uh, with the child welfare system, especially for Indigenous young people. So there's there's lots to lots to dig in there as well that that contribute to this overall challenge for sure. Yeah, Jordan, how about how about you? Like, is is it the same sort of a situation like what Dr. Gosh just told us? Like at, at Boyle Street, is 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 yes. Uh, managing more of, of of the youth homeless population, Boyle Street, more of the adult. How does it work? Can you explain there's, for us? Um, actually, I'll, I'll talk about the. There's something called the Youth Agency Collaborative. So one of the things we hear so much in our uh, in all of the discourse is that people need to collaborate more. Uh, well, the agencies within Edmonton collaborate in an incredible amount, and it's oftentimes that the the decision makers don't want to listen to what the collaborations have to say. But um, the Youth Agency Collaborative is 26 agencies. Yes is part of that. Boyle Street is part of that. Uh, a bunch of other agencies serving youth in our community. But just to give you a sense of the numbers, uh, all of those 26 agencies looked at who, who were the, we were serving that were either experiencing homelessness or right on the edge, couch surfing, that sort of thing. Right. And there were over 2,000 youth in our city. Jeez. And so, um, and so this is the group and, and Margot is, has been a fierce advocate for this, but this is the group that unless we get, our, get a handle on this, uh, that they're transitioning into adult homelessness. And uh, the child welfare system, uh, to Tim's point, to what Cheryl would say, is the, is the biggest feeder of those youth coming in. Uh, some stats that we have are over 50% of our youth who are experiencing homelessness are from the 2SLGBTQ plus community. And so that's a huge issue uh, where we're still sort of youth are, are kind of trying to find a place where they belong, who, who identify with that community because there's too many places still that um, they don't feel safe and don't feel welcome. Um, and, uh, and there are some unique needs. There are different sort of responses that mm -hmm. are required uh, to support youth. Uh, and so it, it does require its own conversation, its own sort of plan, um, because unless we do that, we're just going to have people coming. Um, I, I want to I want to give a shout out to our uh, audience today that's in the live chat. Uh, Cassandra and others have, have reminded me that that when I just talked about demographics, I didn't even mention people with disabilities, uh, which is obviously a huge part of the population as well. Tim, can can I can I ask you to repeat just that bit of your you know what I'm talking mm -hmm. about the anecdote about musical chairs? Um, I know yeah. that this audience would appreciate that because that one really mm -hmm. resonated with me. T tell us about was it Susie? Yeah. Who is it, Susie? 
It was Alice. Alice, so, right. Alice, yeah. So imagine imagine uh, when I try and describe homelessness and, and why homelessness is a housing problem, I often use the analogy of musical chairs, right? So if you imagine a game of musical chairs, you've got 10 kids and 10 chairs. And there's in, in among the 10 kids, there's a girl named Alice. And Alice has twisted her ankle and she's on crutches, right? So uh, in, in that game, the first round... You know, the music starts every, all the kids sort of run around and the music stops and they sit down because they haven't taken away a chair yet, right? Now the music starts again, the kids start moving, they take away a chair. The music stops, all the kids sit down except Alice. Now, if you asked Alice, you know, why she isn't, you know, why she lost the game, right? She'd probably tell you, well, you know, I, I, uh, I, I lost because I'm, you know, I'm in crutches and I, I just couldn't get around to the chair fast enough, right? But is did Alice lose the game because of her sore ankle or did she lose because there aren't enough chairs, right? Chairlessness is the ultimate outcome of this game, just like homelessness is the ultimate outcome of a lack of uh, affordable and rental housing, right? And in that, in when there is uh, low vacancy and high cost rent, there's a lot of people that just can't compete in that market. They can't afford to pay the increased prices. They get turned away by landlords who can be more picky. I talked to an indigenous woman this week who, you know, went in, in Ontario, went to an open house showing and was lined up with everybody else to get into an apartment viewing. And as soon as she got to the front of the line was told, oh, no, it's uh, the, the, the apartment's been rented. Clearly not true. Right. So, you know, homelessness is a housing problem. And like musical chairs, there's people as chairs are taken away, as there's fewer and fewer homes, uh, just can't won't be able to secure housing. I appreciate you sharing that, Doc. You look like you've got something to say here. Absolutely. So the, the disability piece is huge on my mind. And I, so I work as a physician at the University of Alberta Hospital. I see patients coming in all the time. I've had traumatic brain injuries. They've had car accidents. They come in, they get admitted to hospital. We take care of them. We send them to long-term care. We don't push them onto the streets after the rehabilitation. And often they cannot function anymore in proper society. They can't work, etc. I want people to dwell on this thought. We have studies and, and, and uh, a group of studies, they call them a systematic review, in which we pull together studies from all around the world and we analyze the study, right? And, and we come up with some, some sort of consensus around these studies. And what we've seen is that 50% of the population who experiences homelessness has had moderate to severe brain trauma, trauma. They have cognitive decline because of that. They have disabilities secondary to that. And yet we keep them on the street. We don't provide them housing. We don't provide them support. Housing is a human right, and people who have disabilities are, need to be prioritized for housing. We do that in the hospital. We do that for well-established individuals who come in, again, with traumatic brain injuries from car accidents or whatnot. Why can't we do the same for this population? To add to that, I think one of the biggest challenges is stigma. We are so mm -hmm. obsessed with this narrative that the reason people are homeless is because of addictions that when, when they present even to healthcare providers with traumatic brain injury, which is actually what's causing a lot of the challenges that they're facing. And, and those, that 50% number is from what we see in the work that we do is I think very accurate. Um, 
they are presenting with a lot of challenges, but it all, all that is seen is addiction. And so uh, people say, well, we can't solve those problems because there's this addiction issue or they're not even seeing the problem because of the addiction issues, but it's what's underlying. And the addiction is actually because people are self-medicating to deal with not having proper health care. And so um, it's a huge challenge. And, and then once people are on the street, uh, the, the traumatic brain injury may have been a, a reason that they ended up there. Uh, but often it also sort of gets exp- compounded because um, of, of sort mm-hmm. of the experience of being on the street. And so, um, uh, but that, that stigma around addiction, our obsession with addiction being the main issue of homelessness creates all sorts of other problems where people don't actually get the care that they need. Absolutely. And that stigma weighs heavy on us. I mean, as physicians, we do it all the time, this population. We see them in the hospital, in the emergency department, and we just ignore them. Or we say, it's another person who's coming, who's drunk, you know, get them out. Uh, We don't actually take time to understand where they come from, who they are as an individual. And that weighs again on that stigma piece. Uh, and I mean, Jordan, you were talking about something earlier that I really wanted to touch on as well, is that that safety issue, the public safety issue. And I think the way we need to reframe this, it's not a public safety issue. It's a safety for these individuals. It's a safety issue for those individuals who are experiencing homelessness. Uh, and a lot of times people are using drugs to stay safe. We see this all the time. People are using crystal meth to stay awake all night because they can't sleep because they're afraid of being sexually assaulted or physically assaulted or having their stuff stolen. Um, that is why they're using substance often is to stay safe. Uh, and we, I think we need to acknowledge that. Like housing helps provide them with that sense of safety. It helps provide them with that wellness piece that they need to actually reduce their substance use issues and concerns. Uh, so one of my favorite questions to ask my students is if there's like one health intervention you can do for someone who has really bad diabetes, really bad hypertension, has bad substance use issues, and is experiencing homelessness, what is it? And they'll often say, oh, we need to get them on these meds or we need to get them on insulin. The number one answer is getting them housing. That would be the Sleep. biggest health impact ever. Exactly. Sleep. One of the, you know, in addition to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, what's, what's often being presented as maybe even being intoxicated is days and days without having a proper sleep. Months, years sometimes without having a proper sleep. So even if you're accessing the shelter, um, you're in a massive room with 300 other people. It's loud. It's noisy. You're not going to get a good sleep. Uh, lots of people will walk around, like you said, try and stay awake during the night so that it, they can stay safe. Uh, and then just try and find a table or someplace to crash uh, during the day to get as much sleep as they can. And in the environment that we are in today, there is very few places for people to go where they can sit down, they can have a sleep, uh, they can do that sort of thing. And so I think um, the the issue of lack of sleep, and if anybody out there has ever been a parent or dealt with insomnia or anything like that, uh, you don't function very well when you don't have good sleep. And there's mm-hmm. chronic sleeplessness uh, in the population that is also leading to a lot of the health challenges that people are facing. And then when you have that, also when you take a, you take a substance, you react differently, right? The setting that you are in ha- plays a big role in how you react to a substance. Uh, and so that's why, you know, it would be very different if somebody was even stably housed. The way that they would react to a substance because they have a sleep, they feel secure, They'll react to a substance in a very different way than if they're on the street trying to be safe, all that sort of thing. No, absolutely. Psychosis, which we often yeah. are afraid of on the streets when people are talking yeah. to themselves and, and wandering around. That's because of a lack of sleep and the substance use combined. If we yeah. provided them sleep, their risk of psychosis decreases drastically. Sleep is a key way that we manage psychosis. And, and yet we're not providing them with that opportunity for the safety sense to have a good rest. 
CeeLo mm. uh, on the chat says a sober single dad uh, recently became homeless due to divorce. There are many ways mm-hmm. that this can happen. Um, if, you, if you're listening to this in the 48 hours after we're doing this, make sure you watch it on YouTube. I appreciate it. There's, there's someone in there by the name of Quinn as well who's just dropping stats and facts, and I'm so grateful for that. Uh, the, the conversation that this is prompting is, is so very valuable. Um, and we knew time would fly, and, and indeed it has. <laughs> uh, but we do have a bit of a tradition here on our Real Talk Roundtables on the Fridays and that we, we want to give uh, each panelist an opportunity to sort of tie it up with a bow for now uh, to make sure that, that nothing gets left uh, undiscussed or, or to give this audience something to, to chew one something to digest over the next little bit uh maybe a closing statement if you will uh dr gosh you want to go first what's one thing you want this audience thinking about over the next few days you know uh is to understand these individuals as people and and look at them as someone who's experienced trauma and is a victim of society and that way you can develop empathy for this population show compassion that's what we need for this population is compassion Mm, I like that. Uh, Chancellor Garrity. Absolutely agree. And I, I think, Jordan, you used the word last night, kindness. I think that's, mm-hmm. I think I think kindness, if you can combine that, it's hard to find these days, but hope. When I hear, when I first heard there are solutions to this, we know that there are solutions, I think we just need to keep pressing, keep keep our eyes on this and our voices loud and and believe that this this can be addressed we've done it before jordan yeah i'd say um like like everybody said there are solutions to this uh the issue has become politically polarized to the point where it's now about sort of the argument whose argument gets wins uh and to say when we are our best as a city um we come together as a community drawing on all the different expertise to come up with a sort of a plan that will work for for where we're at right now. And I think um, so we can do that. And I would call us to sort of come together as a community uh, to work through some of these solutions because they're there. Okay. Uh, just I want to clarify something just because I'll probably get chirped and criticized for this. Uh, Jordan uh, has not faced any questions right now about the legal battle that his organization, Boyle Street Community, I'm not going to put you in a tough spot. Uh, Boyle Street Community Services is is undergoing right now with with a, a subsidiary company of, of Daryl Cates, the owner of the Edmonton Oilers, over a, a $5 million commitment to the Boyle Street's new facility. Uh, I know, and you and I have discussed off camera, that you can't comment on this as it is before the courts, but I want it to be acknowledged on this episode and let this audience know that we will have you here back when you're able to talk about this uh, in less of a tough and awkward spot and, and, and we'll dig into that story. Sure. Sounds okay. Good. Thanks for your availability yeah. in advance on that one, Jordan. Tim, last word to you. Yeah. Uh, homelessness is solvable. This is a solvable problem. Edmonton, under the leadership of Homer Trust, has um, been among the best in the country uh, at responding to homelessness and we need to get back to that. Um, but I, I would ask your listeners, um, you know, all the Marthas and Henrys, the severely normal Albertans that are listening to this pod- podcast, call your MLA, call your member of parliament, send them a letter saying, look, it, we need to solve the housing crisis. We need you to do something. Uh, homelessness is a housing problem. It's solvable, but we need you to act. That's uh, Tim Richter, who's executive director. Uh, let me let me put your website up here, Tim, so we can pump your tires a little bit. The group does amazing work. <laughs> the Canadian Alliance uh, to End Homelessness, and we'll have the link to that in our bio. Uh, University of Alberta Chancellor Peggy Garrity joining us here. Uh, Dr. Monty Gosh uh, doing an amazing job as an addiction specialist and an assistant professor at the University of Alberta, and of course the executive director of Boyle Street Community Services. Uh, Jordan Reininger joining us as well. Thank you to the four of you uh, for taking action on something that is truly a disaster, but something we know 
that we can address. We really appreciate your availability today here on Real Talk. Thanks, Thanks Ryan. Us. Thanks, Ryan. Really appreciate it. And to Real Talkers, thank you to you for your informed commentary, for keeping it real in the chat. I know that when this podcast drops, it's going to inspire more conversation and more debate, and we welcome that. Of course, this is just one conversation is part of a bigger discussion that we'll continue to host right here on the show. You have our word on that. Talk at ryanjesperson.com is where you can send us your thoughts on this episode and some of the other issues that you're wrestling with. Thanks to these Real Talk roundtables. I want to put, before we get to the flamethrower, uh, we have an all Justin Trudeau edition of the flamethrower this Friday for you, obviously, uh, this week. A lot of attention on this show, and it's brought out some new voices, too. We welcome our new subscribers, and those of you, too, to get to the show, our exclusive with the Prime Minister uh, on our February 21st episode. Uh, if you're one of the few people in Canada that haven't yet watched it, we uh, invite you to do so. So the flamethrower coming up in just a moment, presented by the DQs of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. But first, I want to tell you about Athabasca University. We're talking about a a lot of people right now I know that are looking to make a move. Maybe you want to better prepare yourself or position yourself for a promising job market, but you know you got to level up your knowledge first. You want to get some experience in a post-secondary institution, but there's barriers. The barrier could be cost. The barrier could be your geographical location. You're going, I live way out in the sticks. I can't make it into university. Sounds like Athabasca could be a perfect fit for you. You can learn more about the AU Advantage by checking out their website. That's AthabascaU.com. And don't forget, they've got a whole section on the website for student supports, financial options that are available. Athabasca University is Canada's open university. At Eden Landscaping, they're bringing outdoor spaces to life, have been doing so for more than two decades. And right around this time of year, we're, we're starting to kind of feel a little bit like spring might be on the way, right? I don't want to jinx us. I don't want to rule out another cold snap. But the reason why you want to get serious about your landscaping project, get in touch with Eden today is because it puts you right at the front of the queue. So when they go shovels in the ground this spring, your project is right at the top of the list. They've got, as mentioned, experience with ultra-modern designs, more natural designs. They do stonework, water features, outdoor kitchens, retaining walls, excavation, and more. And they're great listeners. I've seen it firsthand. You can find them online at Landscape Edmonton. Ca. Complete Care Restoration is restoring property and rebuilding peace of mind when it comes to Albertans that are experiencing complete nightmares, fires, floods, burst pipes, asbestos, black mold. It's not the type of thing you want to mess around with yourself. Complete Care Restoration was founded on the principle of providing above-the-norm levels of customer service and attention to their clients. They'll treat your property like it's their own you don't have to wait for disaster either. They just do great builds. They built our studio. We recommend Complete Care Restoration at CompleteCareRestoration.ca. And before we move on, a shout out to all the dog and cat lovers out there. You know that, of course, we're so proud uh, to partner with our friends at Grand Dog Essentials mm. Quality Raw Food. Yeah, I had a question today for this, oh, actually, okay. from my partner, Jatinder. So our cat. Is I hope I know the answer. I hope so, too. <laughs> our cat is actually having some some hair issues, dander and, and matting. Is there anything that Grand Dog can help us out? Okay, with that? so that's a great question. And I'm going to put Jatinder in touch with it. You know what? One of the best parts about 
by the way, we didn't rehearse this. this Not at all. This isn't a bit. It happened um, yesterday, so he's having some trouble. A family-owned business, number one. They approach everything differently. Mm-hmm. So one of the reasons, like when we do business with Grand Dog Essentials, we were buying their quality raw food way before we were business partners with sure. them, right? And one of the things we loved about it is that our dogs, both of them, have had health issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, Moses has joint issues. His back end's kind of going out on him. It's mm-hmm. sad to watch, but they've helped us with supplements and to get him on a custom diet that helps yeah. him with that. And then Monroe has had anxiety issues and so they've helped us with a supplement for that i guarantee that they've got, they've got something, something right? they've got something to help you out if you go to granddog.ca and then you go to the shop now link you can check out all their products uh, they've just introduced a new raw pet food line a big expansion for the company which is super duper cool that's the complete canine uh it's an alberta-based raw pet food manufacturer that offers food made in human grade facilities they are literally the only raw food manufacturer in Alberta that can make that claim. And then if you're in a boat like Johnny and Jatinder, you want to find a supplement that might work best for your dog or cat, you can find the entire list of options there at granddog.ca, including the Four Leaf Rover. That's the brand that we've gone with, and we've seen great results on that. Uh, Don't forget the promo code REALTALK knocks 10% off your first time order delivered to your door in Calgary, Edmonton, and Central Alberta at granddog.ca. Shout out to Tony for $10 in the super chat. Yeah. Says Real Talk's just been killing it this week. Says there's a bit for the beer fund. Tony, thank you very much. And then I think it was Scott that hit us up. Uh, Scott Kilpatrick hit us up with a $25 contribution on wow. our super chat on YouTube. Thank you, everybody. Scotty, thanks for that, man. Really appreciate that. Uh, I do want to give uh, one little shout out to you today. I uh, went on the... Uh, I was just like, hey, I'll just... Google Justin Trudeau, Ryan Jesperson yesterday because, you know, there was a lot of talk around our exclusive with him. Yeah. And boom, I just want to give you a big props because I don't know if you saw it. You've been so busy the last few days. But literally all these news sites that we're showing right now. Oh, wow. If you go to their homepage, their top stories yesterday, Calgary Herald, Yahoo News, CBC News, uh, The National, uh, National Post, Edmonton Journal. And look at that one. Infowars. Alex Jones. Our buddy, the conspiracy theorist, Alex Jones, even wrote a lengthy blog about our show yesterday. So you can see all the headlines yesterday. I literally I was wishing that print was a lot more popular like it was 10, 15, yeah, 20 like years ago newspapers. because I would have been able to go to a newsstand yesterday and probably saw your face with Justin Trudeau sitting here in the beautiful studio we <laughs> built in numerous uh, newspapers. So a big shout out to you. Congrats, buddy. Well, thanks, dude. And it wouldn't have been possible without your work as well. And without this audience, it's obviously been a huge week for the show, uh, an exclusive uh, with the Prime Minister of Canada, a sitting Prime Minister, which is is uh, pretty amazing. And um, we appreciate the audience, uh, the OGs that have been here forever and the new audience members we're getting a lot of notes from you uh, signing up on patreon uh, via the connect link at ryanjesperson.com subscribing to our youtube following us on twitter uh, which has been great and and we sure appreciate that you can also find real talk rj on instagram and tiktok as well which is where mm-hmm. johnny works his magic we had some fun yesterday with my beer poll uh, asking who would you rather have a beer with trudeau poliev sing or bernier mm-hmm. um, and, and i want to give a shout out to the people that are a little bit choked we didn't include elizabeth may on that she'd obviously be fine 
fun to to, yeah. to get into it with. Um, some folks were demanding a none of the above option, and then and then a Jesperson option as well. I said, well, you just need to stop me in anywhere in the city. You can have a beer with me. <laughs> yeah. It's easy to have a beer with me. That's the people have embarked on tougher missions than having a beer with Jespo. Uh, but you have to read honestly uh, <laughs> the comments. I'm having so much fun with this. On I, I said, uh, you know, I think about 26, 27,000 yeah. people uh, chimed in on the Twitter poll, and, just and crazy. if you missed it, uh, you know, sixty percent of respondents said they would most want to have a beer with Justin Trudeau. The poll had been all over the map, mm-hmm. and we talked about it yesterday. Polyev was leading for a while. But tell them about the cherry on the Sunday well, here the, that the, happened. The yesterday. cherry on the Sunday was absolutely hilarious. So, like, literally, so I released the results, and like, we're having fun with this. Like, th- there's a lot of people that are, I, 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 like, I, what do you want to call them? Crybabies, butt hurt. I don't know what you want to call these people, but mm-hmm. like the response is like so many people upset about this poll result. Like who cares? <laughs> it's for fun. It's a joke. <laughs> it, who cares? It's a joke. Uh, but I thought it was absolutely amazing. So we, we released the results yesterday. And uh, just let me say yesterday, Ryan could not like, we're still working here. Right. Yeah. And we just couldn't keep up it, email after email. Hey, did you see it's you're here? Did you see you're here? And then all of a sudden yesterday, boom, the prime minister of Canada <laughs> retweets my poll results with the note, hey, Pierre, hold my beer. Wow. Which I thought was one of the coolest things I've ever seen on that shitty app. And just something I mentioned yesterday, it's it's really, and uh, we talked about this on the discourse, shout out to them, who had a great show about how social media uh, and, and just ch- uh, how it's integrated into politics has changed. Do you think five, ten years ago that JT's comms team would have tweeted out something like that. It just shows how much the landscape has evolved, how much more organic and and just natural it is where he'll tweet something like, hey, Pierre, hold my beer. That's just it's a great time we're living in. uh, Like it's it's uh, it's not lost on me that that's the freaking prime minister. (laughs) You know, like it's so (laughs) funny. And it also gets me super excited, Ryan, like. And we know it's probably going to happen. The the Trudeau versus Poliev showdown at the next election, how crazy it is going to be social media wise and with promo and marketing and how they release things. Uh, we were talking about it on the discourse, even how Danielle Smith with her policies uh, uh, for pronouns and whatnot. The first place she went was social media so yeah. she could release the information and the policies and have it come off in the way she wanted, where before you would have a press conference and people would ask questions. Now it's so much more integrated. It's so much more organic. And uh, me, for one, I love it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Noob Try Again says, whoever runs Trudeau's social media account deserves a raise. I know a lot of you uh, are... (laughs) Plain Power says, Justin Trudeau's on fire. Where has he been for the last eight years? (laughs) You know, that was a question. Who was it? It was one of our audience members. Uh, I apologize, I don't remember your name, but we read the email to the Prime Minister. The guy basically said, listen, you were all fired up saying you were pissed off about Bell Media's cuts. Like, where was that? The audience member said, do that more often. Like, meet Polyev where he's at. Be less." We read another one from, I think it was Sylvia, or another audience member that said to the prime minister don't don't quote michelle obama to me don't talk to me about they go low we go high none of that they mm-hmm. want to see people throwing bombs throwing punches getting into it i don't know we'll see uh tony says that's definitely a supriya move on the prime ministers <laughs> you know here's the thing you so you know supriya devetti who we know and love obviously uh supriya the co-host uh, with me of seriously which has been on hiatus obviously she's experienced a uh, personal tragedy uh but supriya is back in the mix now she's just signed on as a senior advisor to the prime 
minister, uh, which is an amazing opportunity for Sapria. Uh, it would be impossible for us to respect her anymore. I don't think Sapria is like managing Trudeau's social media. I think that she's a little higher up on the chain than that. No offense to social media managers, uh, but I wouldn't be surprised because she she's got that cheekiness. Sapria yeah. is like and she's not, by the way. If you follow her on Twitter, which I recommend, she has not dialed it back one bit. Not at all. Did you she, see the part where she was coming at one of her critics the other day saying, hey, buddy, don't insane. get mad at me just because you don't know how to make it. You don't know how to make a woman come. Yeah. I was like, whoa. <laughs> well, like if you want to hear real talk, I mean, Sapria is is the go to destination on Twitter. So please follow her. She's just incredible. Yeah. But also big shout out to you. Lots of people texted me, inbox me, DM me and said, who else but uh, Ryan? Jesperson could have got Trudeau back out of his I don't know what the word is for it but just getting him to to be natural on the real. show the last few interviews we've seen with him have been so rigid so like it like it's reading off a paper like he's reading a teleprompter this was one of the best interviews I've seen of him in the last three or four years well, I appreciate so, yeah. it and and uh, and I think that that's a testament to the show and the vibe of the show like it's you know it's 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 really incredible that he sat here I know it really pissed off Alberta's premier who said you know the prime you know says the prime minister had like 30 minutes to go sit down with a podcaster uh, but didn't have time to meet with Alberta's premier uh, yeah. it's remarkable to have the prime minister here for half an hour no notes no advanced questions despite what some people this is this is hilarious you want to talk about big cry babies. Uh, this guy, Marty up north, everybody's always putting him on my radar. They say, you got to follow this guy. He's like 75,000 followers. Just goes to show that followers do not equal brain cells. Uh, but this guy here, look at this. Uh, he's, he's, so, he's so miffed. He's so upset about my stupid beer poll. Look at this guy. He says, this is the caliber of leadership and media in this country. Justin Trudeau is so petty that he paid so-called journalist Ryan Jesperson to run a poll for him. Oh, he, God. He, no, just wait. He then launched an army of bots to make sure he came out on top of the poll. And then if that wasn't bad enough, he used the results of the fake poll to reply to Pierre's original tweet. Get this two days later. Don't tell me this is just playful banter. Trudeau is a narcissist who can't handle any criticism. I mean, I'm going to take Marty's tears, put them in an ice tray and <laughs> drop it into an old fashioned just and just sip on it all weekend long. It's just we I mean, you tweeted this out yesterday, so I'm not saying anything you haven't. We were not paid. They did not Obviously. pay us. We did not pay them. No questions from the show were sent to him in advance. Never. No, no questions from them were sent to us in nope. advance. And at no time did they tell us which direction to go. They simply were fans of the show because he'd been on before you'd interviewed him several times and he came in here and he was natural and he was direct and that's, yeah. all, that's the bottom line shout out to kimberly ten dollars in the super chat thanks kimberly we sure appreciate that yeah i had and i had somebody so i tweeted yesterday just like just to be clear i mean you guys already know this or you should know this most of you know this we don't give questions uh to, to interviews interviewees guests on the show ahead of time occasionally they give us some to say hey bring this up i will say to someone like in in our correspondence before an interview i'll say to like for example you know we got dr monty goshen who's like an, an internist and an addiction specialist i'll say to him hey dr gosh is there anything i might not think of to ask you that you want to make sure we talk about because i'm not an expert in that field so i don't know mm -hmm. so there's prep that goes into interviews sure but we don't send a list of questions to the prime minister's office. You've got to be kidding me. And regardless of how you feel about Justin Trudeau, the guy sat here with no notes, no talking points, and took questions that he didn't know. I mean, he's not an idiot. He knows I'm going to ask him about his polling. He knows I'm going to ask about his leadership. His team he keeps knows him I'm well prepped. Well, he's the 
fucking prime minister. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, do you think Jesperson might ask about the carbon tax? Do sure. you think he might? Like, yeah. So, you know, someone was saying to me, oh, like he sure was able to reference the fact that the feds dropped a bunch of money onto Calgary's Ring Road and to the Anthony Hende and the Yellowhead in Edmonton. How would he have had that information at his disposal had he not had the questions ahead of time? I don't know, because he has what? 20 people feeding him information every day. He's like- a prime minister? <laughs> He's not like one of your buddies at the neighborhood pub. Like, what are you talking about? I just thought it was so funny. And and I and I just like, to me, I love it. I mean, it, it, the downloads are off the charts, obviously. This is going to go down as our most downloaded, epi- downloaded episode in Real Talk history uh, for obvious reasons. And I just love that it's bringing out people that can't handle listening to someone with a different opinion speak openly, candidly, honestly, and challenge them on something. It's like, I mean, I've had people, I'm going to be tweeting about this later because I've been saving some of my sure. favorite feedback. And I'll be like, I'll just like read some of these. I don't have them to show on the screen right now. But but some of these comments, you know, you're a clown, Ryan. If you think Trudeau's good for Alberta, you're a complete fool. Move to Ontario with your clown wig and your big red shoes, you traitor. Like, okay, Ryan, you suck and you're a traitor to Canada. You're done in Alberta media. You should be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> Done in Alberta media is an interesting flex for somebody that just had the prime minister sitting in their studio. And I but think those texts are a good lead into our next segment. Wouldn't you say, Johnny? Yes. I love how this guy rolls. This show wouldn't happen without John Hicks. Make no mistake. Every Friday, it's our last episode of the week. Our friends at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park, that's Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, and Baseline Road, give us a chance to blow off a little steam. We issue the invitation to you to bring the heat. We're looking for your hot takes. We want to hear them. These are all real emails sent to talk at ryanjesperson.com. It's the flamethrower presented by the DQs of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. This and all Justin Trudeau edition of the flamethrower. This one from Jake, who says when the prime minister talked about division and anger, Ryan, why the hell didn't you push back on him? He's on video admitting to dividing Canadians to win the 2019 and 2021 elections. His entire reign has been about division and catering to the left. Anyway, I'm sure you needed a shower after that. I know I did. So much bullshit was spewed. That from JR. What about this one from Sam, who says, Jesmo, my family's worked in the oil sands for three generations. Uh, The old this one happily retired with an amazing pension and benefits the middle ones earning high salaries great benefits and the youngers earning much less in terms of salary and benefits compared to the older two plus they have to deal with the continual rise of automation in heavy equipment justin trudeau was correct the industry does not have workers backs i've watched suncor lay off workers while at the same time taking delivery of a 75 million dollar bombardier private jet we have been fooled by right-wing politicians they're not in the business of supporting alberta workers that from Sam. What about this from Jennifer who says, wow, articulate, passionate, nicely surprised. Now invite Pierre Poliev, who just announced he doesn't want trans women in bathrooms or on sports teams. What's Pierre's climate policy? What's Pierre's replacement for the carbon tax? Seriously, I want to know more. I'm only seeing the batshit crazy stuff about Poliev. That from Jennifer. We'll tell you, we got an invite in with his team. We're hoping he'll do the show. This from Albert, who says, you know, the reason that that Atlantic carve-out, Ryan, you called it a debacle talking to the Prime Minister? Well, that was just because the new fees, are we allowed to say new fees? He said the new fees 
just anymore. switched to the federal carbon plan, and they didn't have any time to affect the changes like heat pumps. This is a tempest in a teapot, Jesperson. Canada's carbon tax is working, and emissions are dropping. Scrapping the tax won't even balance the budget. It definitely won't help lower-income Canadians. It won't help fight climate change, and it would be an overall negative. Now, all that said, what's most frustrating is time and again and again and again, you, Ryan, will not say... So what are you replacing it with? Is that better? Buck up, Ryan, and do your listeners right. That from Albert. What about this one from Catalina, who says, geez, Ryan, after reading the comments on your interview with Justin Trudeau, I thought I'd contribute my two cents. People complained you were too easy on him, that you didn't cut him off to insert a counterpoint. The funny thing is I thought the same thing about your interviews with Danielle Smith and David Parker. Now, I've followed your career for years. Thank you, Catalina. Says, I've observed your interviewing style. You ask questions, you give the person a long runway to flesh out their ideas. That's indicative of an inquisitive interviewer who truly wants to hear what the interviewee has to say. So many interviewers these days take on a combative style. The approach is not designed to go deep into conversation. It's ego-driven. It places the spotlight on the question asker, not the answerer. It's designed to inflame and glean sensational sound bites. To the people in your audience who accuse you of being a liberal shill, after the Trudeau spot, I will say we on the left, says Catalina, felt that you were sucking up to Danielle Smith and gave David Parker an undeserved platform. Ryan's not painting pictures, everybody. He's providing the canvas. We were talking about myself in the third person. Goes on to say, the person he's interviewing fills the canvas with their policies, beliefs, points of views, and he leaves it up to us to judge the portrait that the interviewee has painted. Ryan trusts this audience to draw its own conclusions about what the interviewee has said. The podcast is not designed to spoon-feed listeners warm and comforting pablum, which many programs in echo chambers do. Ryan, if half your audience is pissed off at any given time, that means you're doing a great fucking job. That from Catalina. Thanks for that. And this one from Dwayne, who says, Jespo, I've been a fan since the 6.30 Ched days, occasionally tuning in to catch up on your new show, but I've had it with the relentless flip-flopping charlatan of your recurring guest, Charles Adler, who seamlessly altered his tune to align with the political zeitgeist. The zenith of my disillusionment came after witnessing his Twitter post in response to your Trudeau interview. What possible grievance could I hold against dear old Grandpa Chuck, you wonder? Your podcast crony delightfully extolled the Prime Minister, praising his intelligence and passion, but I vividly remember Adler years ago portraying Justin Trudeau as an imbecile, as an out-of-touch, passionless, born with a silver spoon, you know, back when he was Jason Kenney's little pup, now he's perched on his left-wing high horse, disdainfully peering down at conservatives, relishing any chance to disparage Pierre Poliev. Adler practically penned the current conservative playbook word for word with his old rhetoric. I'm fascinated by this convenient shift in his narrative regarding Ottawa's attacks on Alberta, a discourse he conveniently abandoned when expedient. Old Uncle Chuck fancied shedding his skin, slithering into bed with the left, aiming for mainstream media commentator spots to sip from the liberal media milk and honey cup. You can discern where that endeavor landed. Thank God for real talk, says Dwayne. Now, while your listeners, both left-leaning and otherwise, may remain blissfully unaware of this history, peddling George Bush's lies that birthed the Iraq war, let's not forget how the conservatives he mocks are the very ones he once championed. Adler talks about this all the time. Back to Dwayne, he says, so Ryan, I don't harbor animosity toward the man, but I discern through his 
his Machiavellian maneuvers, attempting to position himself where the monetary currents flow. Alas, his bid for credibility has crumbled. Everyone's entitled to their opinions and political choices, but when shaping narratives, responsibility is imperative. I can't help but wonder when the next season of skin shedding awaits dear old Uncle Chuck. Jeez. Shots from Dwayne. We'll give Charles a chance to respond coming up when he joins us on Monday. The Flamethrower presented by the DQs of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Parker. All real emails from you, real talkers, to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Coming up on next week's show, we got a whole bunch in store for you, including a sit-down with the fourth candidate for the Alberta NDP leadership. That's right, she hasn't announced it yet, but on Wednesday of next week, you'll find Jody Callahoo Stonehouse right here in the Real Talk studio. In the meantime, have a great weekend and keep it real. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson, executive producer Josh Dunford, technical producer John Hicks. General Manager, Katie Cook-Chivers. Account Coordinator, Lawrence Durlego. Human Resources, Lena Shepard. Website Design, Mike Johnston. VoiceOver by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Supriya Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Brandi Morin, Anne Castleman, Ori Hogan, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Member Emerita, Julie Rohr. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Soto, and Nakota Sioux, home to the Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is a relay project. For more, check out ryanjasperson.com.